Welcome. You're listening to Profiles and Leadership Podcast with Steve Anderson, sponsored by VGM Advantage. This is Season 1, Episode 6. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today we will be speaking to Brett Roberts. Dr. Roberts grew up in a family business named Warmont Live Bait. This early exposure helped to hone the skills needed to become an entrepreneur as he has assisted his family in growing this business from 19 locations to 130 locations in three states. Currently, Dr. Roberts divides his time between running several businesses. Robert's Physical Therapy, composed of five practices spread across Wisconsin, Inertia Solutions, a 24-hour fitness center, 113 Brooklyn, a brownfield real estate redevelopment business, and Cold Creek Investments, commercial real estate. He has successfully transitioned out of full-time patient care and into a role of running his businesses. Dr. Roberts is also a strong advocate for changing our profession's entry-level understanding of the business of healthcare. In his opinion, the physical therapy profession has been stunted from reaching its true potential as a result of this shortcoming. He is currently a candidate for the director position of the private practice section. His platform is geared towards improving our profession's use of analytics outside of clinical outcomes, improving entry-level business education, and ensuring our legislative strategies will help our practices capitalize on the benefits of disruptive technologies. Welcome, Brad. How are you doing today? Good. Pretty good. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, well, it's uh, great to have you on the show. And as you're, uh, you know, I'm real interested to kind of hear about your journey a little bit. And, and I'm interested, too, about this family business that uh, you were a part of and, and learning how to grow that and how that kind of uh, correlates to what you do in the physical therapy world. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, how you got to where you're at, and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, sounds good. So I grew up in, in rural, kind of northern Illinois. And when I was about probably nine or ten years old, uh, my dad had a guy that he worked with that had a worm uh, live bait distribution business selling night crawlers, basically. And he was kind of pestering my dad for a year or so for us to be a location because we happened to live on the corner of two highways and there's kind of a private link development down the road from us. And so eventually um, he agreed and it, he thought it'd be a good idea to kind of teach my sister and I about, you know, economics and you know, how to make money and stuff like that. And so for every dozen worms we sold, I'd get a quarter, my sister get a quarter. And mm-hmm. of course, like every good business venture, once we got to a point where we're each making a hundred bucks a week, my parents took it back over because, you know, that's too much money for a 10 year old kid to be making. <laughs> you were too successful. So, <laughs> so ultimately what happened is that the guy came to my parents after doing this about a year or so and wanted to know if we wanted to buy the business from him. He was going to have some changes in his life and wanted to, to get out of the business. And so we had a family discussion about it and, and ultimately ended up buying the business. At the time, we bought it had 19 locations. And the way we were kind of structured business-wise is that we would hire local kids that would pack worms from us. And the first year, they'd make six cents a dozen. Second year, they'd make eight cents a dozen um, if they were good workers. But it was basically pure productivity. And then what we would do is we'd go out and we'd deliver. And my mom and I would go out 
And my dad basically kind of created a game for us to play, which is how many, how many locations can you pick up? And so when I was 15, 16 years old, I would walk into a convenience store that would be along the route and ask to speak to the manager and, and basically explain to them, if you give me the space to put a door inside refrigerator in, um, I'll show you how to make $10,000 this year. And next year you're going to have to double the space because I'll double the volume, et cetera. And so I'd come back at the end of the day and be like, Dad, I, I talked to two more stores, and, and we kind of added those locations on and whatever. And so it just started to kind of mushroom from there. And so we grew it from 19 locations to begin with to about 130 locations in three states. And what happened is it, it kind of got to the point where, like all businesses, you, you get to a point where you have to make a decision. Do you basically hire a driver and really go big scale, or do you decide at that point that, you know, we're going to do something else and you sell it? And, and also my parents at that point in time, um, you know, decided to sell the business because my mom was a main delivery driver and stuff like that. But for me, it was kind of the perfect business incubator to kind of grow up in. Um, you know, ironically, we had 130 locations. We had one bait shop. We had about three campgrounds and all the rest were your 24-hour mini marts. And so it really, you know, taught me a lot about location, you know, location, yeah. location, location is just kind of the key. And convenience sells. People go to one stop, they get gas, cigarette, beer, and worms, and they're on their way. <laughs> and it also really kind of gave me a, an interesting insight to look at, you know, areas that you think would have, um, would be your best producing stores really weren't. And so what I mean by that is you would pull up into a store and it'd be in a very nice area, maybe an affluent area, and you think you'd run a lot of product through there because people would have a lot of discretionary income and stuff like that to be able to spend. But the reality was our stores were probably in some of the worst locations that pushed the most amount of volume. And so it was really interesting to kind of see how, on face value, the economic story behind a successful business is actually a 180-degree turn of what you would really expect. Yeah, yeah, you got um, some surprises there. Yeah, so. and so it's been interesting because I've been able to take a lot of those lessons that I've kind of learned, and, you know, we're, we're applying that in the physical therapy world in, in very rural environments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have one clinic. Um, right now we're... we're at five clinics is where we're at, um, size-wise. And one clinic I would say is in what you would call a somewhat metropolitan area. I think the, the surrounding population is maybe 40,000, somewhere in there. Um, but a couple of our clinics are in towns of 1,000 people and towns of 800 people. And so it's just been really interesting to kind of see how, you know, you can take that the business concept if you understand, you know, the idea of convenience and then you look at some of the demographics and, and and who will kind of utilize your services that you can go into markets that people wouldn't necessarily think would be successful. So what you're saying is, did you discover the same thing that in the worm business, some of the more less desirable locations actually did better? Are you finding that in the physical therapy world too, in the sense that these small towns of 800 people, the clinic does well? The clinic does well. Yeah. So the, the 800 person we, we just opened, but the one in a thousand, we've been going for probably about six or seven years um, in that location. And we've actually kind of spun off like a hybrid model where we've got in one building, we own a 24-hour fitness center. We also have a physical therapy clinic. A town of 1,000 people, our fitness center is about 200 members. So we got about 20% of the population. That's amazing. Um, that is, is, a, is a membership in there. It, it is. It's really kind of, it's been fun to see. It's kind of like a Petri dish, like an experiment that we can kind of play around with. And, you know, clinic-wise, I mean, it, we've, we've driven enough volume through there. We've got a full-time therapist that's going through the residency program and doing that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah, when you talk to people, they're like, well, there's no way a clinic could survive in that area. 
you know, and it's not your traditional, we don't have the population density around us. You know, you have to understand that you have to look out wider from that market. Um, but understanding where you sit just even geographically to some of your larger metropolitan centers, you know, is kind of the key to that success. Yeah, very interesting. So let's back up a little bit. Let's say, uh, how does a child entrepreneur in the worm business uh, become a physical therapist? <laughs> so um, playing football. I Actually, my original, well, actually, there's a, a two-part answer. My first dream was actually to be a mechanical engineer, and I wanted to design race cars and race them because I grew up racing as well. But I realized that you have to be really good at math, and that was actually kind of, ironically enough, a, a weak point of mine, as you could say. And so playing football and stuff like that, I actually ended up hurting my knee my junior year in high school and spent time in a PT clinic. And then, you know, they're, they're cool enough people that I decided to repeat it my senior year and then repeat it my freshman year in college. <laughs> and basically through that exposure, it's like, wow, this is really cool. You can make a, a pretty big impact on people's lives. Um, you can help them get back to kind of accomplish their goals. And, and I just thought it was a really cool thing to do. That's great. And so where did you decide to go to physical therapy school? What school did you attend? Yeah, so I went through, I got my master's degree um, through UW-Madison, uh, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then went back through the transitional DPT program through EIM to get my doctorate. Right. So I remember uh, you were a, a student in that program, and um, I was one of the faculty members in the leadership class, so uh, I remember yep. that time. So you gained a lot out of that program, I would assume? I did definitely would highly recommend the executive management program for anybody that's interested in, in understanding basically how to kind of get an MBA to run a, a therapy clinic, I think was a very valuable program. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So you, uh, you go from uh, PT school, you, you take your experience uh, from your family business and you put it together and now you've got some other businesses as well. So uh, I'm, I'm interested because you're not the, the normal path that a physical therapist usually takes. So you uh, start a business, uh, you are out of patient care now where you're just solely running the business, but you have other businesses alongside that as well. Yeah, so I had kind of a five-year plan going to PT school, practice for five years, open up a clinic, and actually ended up pulling it off initially in three years. And actually, well, from day one, had two businesses right off the bat. We had um, an opportunity to, to kind of form our initial real estate business called Cold Creek Investments. Um, Cold Creek bought the building um, that we ultimately ended up putting our practice, Robertson Associates Physical Therapy, in. And so from that, you know, we're, I would say we're a very opportunistic business. You know, it always have been. Um, we've kind of dabbled in, and we had a nursing home contract for a while and did that. We've done home-based therapy. We do aquatic therapy. Um, you know, always kind of be on the lookout for what are some opportunities. You know, I, I kind of, uh, you know, liken it to, to surfing. You know, you're out there in the ocean, and you start to see a ripple of a wave, and you hope when you catch it that it turns into something. If it does, great. And if it doesn't, then you just look for the next wave that kind of comes along. And so because of that, we've been able to go in and um, made kind of a strategic push to kind of get myself out of patient care because I knew after going, after, you know, six, seven years of, of kind of growing and contracting, growing and contracting, I had to do something different. And so ultimately, you know, took the risk and said that, you know, if I were to take myself out 100% to just focus on businesses, what can we do? So I've been out of patient care now for about a year and a half. And in the last year and a half, we've, we've you know, launched the 24-hour fitness center in our clinic. Um, we've kind of started to dabble in more real estate development. We've got a couple more commercial properties we own. 
Uh, we're starting to look into brownfield redevelopment. So my, my wife's background is she's an urban planner, and so she likes to look at, you know, ways of kind of doing downtown redevelopment type things. And so we kind of developed, you know, the, the passion to be able to help rehabilitate people and it's converted that more to the real estate side. And we're starting to kind of look into brownfield redevelopment. Um, what a brownfield site is is basically an ecological disaster happened on a piece of land at some point in time. And so what you do is you figure out ways that you can kind of remediate the soil to turn it from what is kind of a wasteland in some cases to actually, you know, viable property again. And through kind of a stroke of, of good luck, we happen to find there's a company. Um, I live in Amherst, a town of a thousand people, and there's a, a company in town here that does environmental assessments. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, part of what they do is they do a process what's called phytoremediation. So basically, they understand there's certain types of trees that you can actually plant on the soil. It takes the chemicals up into the trees, which the enzymes of the tree break down the chemical. It actually expires it out through the leaves, and over time, it turns your soil back to, to neutral. Wow. And so that's kind of part of that process that we're doing. Um, so it's, it's been interesting, um, you know, to see the different routes and how they kind of play into each other. Yeah, so you've taken uh, the business side of physical therapy and uh, gone outside of that into some other, you know, not even that related, somewhat related with real estate, but uh, di- different areas. And so um, what do you see for the future? Do you see that? Uh, what what side of the business or what division of the business do you think has the most uh, growth potential, and uh, how do you look at the future? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think from the therapy side, I think there's definitely there's, – we've never been – in a better time to be an entrepreneur in health, in healthcare, particularly in physical therapy. Uh, I think there's, there's, uh, you know, an unlimited amount of potential out there that we can, can look to, um, to foster and to, to grow, whether it be going directly to employers, you know, there's the, the opioid epidemic that's going on right now. I mean, you know, PTs definitely looked at it as one of the ways to kind of avoid starting that whole addiction cycle and stuff like that. And so I think, you know, definitely there's, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for our, our profession. I definitely think that there's also an opportunity for us to be disrupted using technology um, to kind of create um, opportunities to go ahead and, and, and treat patients in ways that we haven't even thought of before. Um, I know one of the things that's kind of a, a debate or argument that I've brought up at kind of a national level when we go to like the stakeholder affairs forum is particularly telemedicine is that you're utilizing, you know, basically an 1850s boundary to kind of limit the scope of what someone can be able to do in terms of telemedicine, and in my mind, it makes more sense to allow providers to practice within their scope of practice, um, regardless of where they happen to be physically sitting or where the patient happens to be sitting. And and so I think, you know, there's definitely an opportunity for disruption from that standpoint. Um, I, I think when you look at healthcare trends, I mean, we've definitely seen the trend of deductibles going through the roof. Um, co-insurance is going up, you know, co-pay is going up. And so it's creating an interesting opportunity in that one is it's shifting more, um, you know, incentive, I guess you can say, on the, on the customer side to take kind of an active role in their health care. But I think if you, especially from a small business perspective, where your business model has much less overhead structure than, than say, like a huge hospital corporation, it creates an opportunity for there to be potential business, um, you know, down the road and to give those smaller practices um, a competitive advantage. Um, yeah, that, that's really And I would say, and definitely looking at, you know, outside of, um, outside of PT and stuff like that, I think there's, there's definitely opportunity out there with, in terms of real estate investment, you know, kind of watching the market, 
um, if you like to kind of dabble in, in, in like a stock portfolio, that kind of thing. Um, you know, having ways, you know, looking at the fitness center, the nice thing about the fitness center is, yeah, we have, we have 200 members and there's people who, you know, even if half of them are actively using the gym, it gives you the opportunity where people are now coming into your, your PT clinic and you can talk to them, kind of network with them and, and kind of talk about what you can do to positively impact them, their ability to kind of enjoy their own life in a way that they hadn't even thought of yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you've found a difference because I guess my experience has been when you look at fitness centers or health clubs and PT clinics, that a lot of PTs think that that's a, you know, a natural uh, partnership, so to speak. And, and uh, you know, my experience has been that, that a lot of PTs don't do well in those settings, and that's because they're just so dramatically different. So, you know, the, the health club is so based on volume. The PT is more based on quality care. And, and the health club thinks, oh, all these patients will become members. And uh, the PT clinic thinks, oh, all these members will become patients. And that doesn't usually happen that way. And so I see PT struggling. So do you think there's a difference when you own both sides of the equation? Or how do you make that, uh, that business model work? Yeah, actually, there, there is. I mean, there's kind of a, an inside joke that, you know, the, the gym model is the only business where you hope you have a lot of people that sign up, but that nobody shows up. Yeah, exactly. Which is the complete opposite of, of, of PT. And the reason for that is because you, you sign up so you can collect the revenue, but you don't take the wear and tear on your equipment. And so I think part of what we've tried to balance, and when we've, we've been kind of trying to figure out, we'd like to do like a medically oriented gym type model. We don't know exactly how that's going to work in our rural setting. And uh, part of us trying to figure out just the economics of it is what's going to make it a viable business plan. Um, but what the fitness center, from our standpoint, is it, it's done a couple things, and, and we've been able to drive a little bit more active participation by by taking the approach of um, our models don't just better yourself, better your community. And, and what we do is for people who, you know, prepay on a certain amount of time, we actually end up cleaving off a portion of that membership and then donating it back into the community, whether it be the school. Uh, there's an old opera house in town that are trying to rehab. That's kind of our plan for 2018 is to donate money to go kind of towards that. And so if you start looking at ways that you can kind of create active participation in things that benefit more than just the individual, then I think you'll start to see an, up, an uptake in, in or increase in, in usage from that standpoint. So a real focus um, on community, becoming a community partner, community member, that you're here to improve the community, not just uh, provide a service that uh, that, that uh, can make you money and, and you can do well. It's more of a, uh, a community-building type of approach. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons I think, and that goes back to we, we succeed really well in small markets, um, smaller communities, because that, you know, again, we can make a bigger impact. Um, in a larger market, you know, maybe you have to drop a six-figure check to kind of make a – to get noticed at times or something like that. I mean, you know, in, in a smaller market, it's it's you don't have to spend as much money. You don't have to get creative. People are just happy that you're willing to kind of invest in an area that, um, quite frankly, has maybe been overlooked by a lot of people in the past, um, whether intentionally or not, but – do you run into situations where I would assume that kind of in small towns, if you're not from that town, you didn't grow up in that town, but you move in and, and trying, is there some skepticism? Is there some, you know, a resistance to an outsider, so to speak, coming into our community and trying those kind of things? Uh, yeah, I would say they're, they're definitely, they kind of, 
maybe look at you at arm's reach for just a little bit. I think part of it is I kind of grew up in a small town, so I kind of understand where they're coming from. And I think, again, actions speak louder than words. I mean, we, for the Community Give Back program for the fitness center, I mean, we ended up walking in the first time just to the, the high school and or the, the school in town is K through 12 in one building and had three checks for them. And the, the first, you know, we divided the money up into thirds, and the third went towards our music theater. A third went towards non-revenue producing sports with an emphasis on kind of female athletics. And then a third went towards what they call the Falcon Fund, which is basically if there's a field trip opportunity and, and there's an economic hardship for a family, they pull funds out of that account to kind of cover that expense. And the first time we walked in there, it was like, you know, that's, you're giving us money for what? And I said, just to have, here's what I want it to be put towards, and you guys decide what you need to do with it. And so I think it kind of took, not that they were taken aback, but I think it just kind of surprised them because it was just kind of a different way of kind of thinking. And then here's somebody who was, at the time, had no kids in school, um, but just was kind of, you know, an interesting approach. Mm-hmm. And since then, we've, you know, kind of watching the PTO minutes, and I see that the a principal one time wanted, you know, playground balls purchased or sleds purchased for sledding because we got a lot of snow up here in Wisconsin. You know, those are opportunities that I could step in and say, hey, that that matches kind of the active lifestyle that we're trying to promote both to the fitness center and to the clinic. Hey, we're willing to throw some money at that and, and to be able to cover that expense. And when you start to get that momentum, you get a lot of positive PR from it. People are, you know, I was stopped in the parking lot by a couple of parents saying, my son is so happy, my daughter's so happy. There used to be a long line to wait for a sled at recess, and now because you bought 20 sleds, they don't have to wait anymore. They get to play the whole time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it know? is really cool. Yeah, it's a, it's a great approach and, and one that I think has, has a lot of vision in it. So mm-hmm. you've always been somebody that I've known that's kind of... Th- uh, thought of things outside the box, so to speak. So you're not afraid to try something new and different. So uh, what what in the future are you going to try that's new and different that most PTs would think you're crazy? Um, well, like right now, so we've, a year ago we were two clinics and now we're at five. So we've done three, attempted to open three clinics basically at the same time. Um, so that's kind of a little crazy as far as just expansion. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, so looking at, you know, going to the brownfield redevelopment, the, the piece of property that we purchased in this town is actually an ideal real estate location. We, we actually were able to get the land. Uh, it wasn't free, but it was about as close to free as you can because what happened is that there was um, perk. Perk is a chemical that's a byproduct of, the, of dry cleaning that got into the soil. Okay. And so our next plan, kind of thinking outside the box, is, is taking and rehabbing that land and then taking the business model that we've been playing around with in Amherst move it to that community and end up building basically a three-suite building, PT clinic, fitness center. And then where it's located at, there's a, a, a municipal water park right behind it, so water slides, pools, and stuff like that. Uh-huh. It's probably going to delve into some sort of a, maybe a restaurant-type business or something along those lines. Um, that kind of ties everything all together, and, and our hope is that we want to make, because of where it's located, right in the center of this particular community, make that kind of a focal point of kind of health and wellness and and not just in ways that require business and then an economic transaction, but we want to take the parts of the land, and the land is pretty much one city block, so if you think about how that big that is, we want to take the backside and create kind of like an outdoor exercise-type environment um, where people can throw out for a walk. They can do pull-ups or push-ups or sit-ups or whatever they want. But, again, it's a park. It's a fitness park. And trying to use that as a way to kind of drive healthier lifestyles, especially since, you know, Wisconsin is, is a state that tends to be on the 
on the wrong end of kind of the obesity scale and stuff like that. So, so how does uh, how long does it take to rehab that piece of property with the chemicals that you said were in the soil? This is are you talking years or? So when we looked at it, so the the parcel of land that we ended up purchasing actually was on the market for about probably ten years somewhere in there. And when they first tested it, it had a certain number that means something to the the people that work with the land. And we retested it, and it was the first time it had been retested in, in nine years, basically. And what happened is the company we're working with, they came back and they said, well, the, the good news is, is it's actually improved 87% mm-hmm. from beyond where it was tested. It's almost 90% better in nine years. And that's what, actually doing nothing at all. And so they said that what we anticipate is that in the area, in this particular land, so you've got a city block, the parcel that's actually contaminated is a very small portion of that in kind of close to the middle, but not quite the middle is where this, this area is. And so he said, you know, if you're to go through and plant this particular tree and you take these steps, you know, we anticipate that that area that still has some contamination, you know, 15 years down the road will have no contamination. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, you'll have basically now an entire parcel of land that has a clean bill that you've successfully rehabbed. And we're saying 15 years, but we're also then admitting that it's 90% better than it was nine years ago without doing anything. So, so you can go ahead with some of the building projects, even though it's not 100% yet. Yeah, so we're able to go ahead and, and do that. There's, depending on where we decide to put the footprint in the building, and, you know, obviously, you know, position matters because if, if the segment over here is contaminated and you build over it, you have to do one thing. Right. If you just blacktop over it, then, you know, it, it is what it is type thing. But um, so there's going to be some steps that we'll have to kind of take, and that's kind of our next step. Um Currently, we, we have a clinic that we just launched in that market. Um, we're actually just renting a space kind of down the road from it. Um, and we'll, in the meantime, kind of use that empty, vacant parcel in prime real estate location as a way of just creating advertising of awareness of who we are. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a long... That's a long-term strategy, a long visionary strategy, which uh, is great. Uh, you know, I think it shows that you're in it for the long haul and you're looking way down the road because a lot of people have trouble mm-hmm. kind of seeing beyond the next year, uh, you know, what's going to happen. So that, that, that's impressive. You're also uh, running for the private practice section board position this year as well. Yes, so I am. Tell um, me a little bit about what you uh, what you believe uh, needs to be done in private practice on the national level, uh, being in that uh, potentially being in that uh, position of power or influence, I should say. Yeah, so I I think there's a couple things. I think when you look at kind of the long term health of our profession, you know, and again, using I know a lot of times people say, well, chiropractic is almost kind of a bad a bad word type thing, but. I'll be honest, if you look at the way they've kind of structured some of their educational models, they have a, a huge emphasis on, on business. Um, and I think there's times where our profession, unfortunately, has been taken to the woodshed when it comes to economic and financial matters. The other thing that's happening is that you have scenarios in which you have the actual economic impact of healthcare is now having to be dealt with on an individual level by your consumer, and you have situations in which Therapists are coming out, fantastic clinicians, but don't have a, even a rudimentary understanding of, of kind of the basic economics of healthcare and how their decisions can impact people both positively and negatively. And so, one of the one of the tenets that you could say of my platform is looking at how do we start to implement 
some entry-level business education to try to get our next, um, you know, graduating physical therapist coming out of truly understanding the economics of, of PT. And I know it's always a challenge because, you know, obviously in the academic world, there's pressures and pushback and time constraints and stuff as well. So one of the things I did on a local level is I created a simple game in which I would interact with the students at a university. And we've done this at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We've also done this um, with the, the student um, forum that kind of came together. So we had a bunch of different schools. But basically, just kind of talk them through a real-life scenario. And, and what that is is you need to decide as an individual therapist what do you feel is the appropriate number of people that you need to see each day, how many days a week do you need to work, and that kind of thing. And so what I did is I just took a dice, six-sided dice, each number in the dice corresponds with a different amount that a visit would pay. And so if they want to see five people a day, five days a week, great, 25 visits, shake the dice, what is, a, what, what is the revenue produced based on that, on that model and have them simulate basically a week. And then had a simple Excel spreadsheet that I came up with that calculated what payroll tax would be and health insurance and all that stuff. And then at the end of it, at the end of the simulation, basically talked to them and let's have a conversation about did your business decisions make sense? You know, the first year we did in Madison, I think out of, you know, 12 classes or 12 teams or clinics or whatever, one turned a profit, 11 lost money, some lost a significant amount of money. Oh, wow. And so it, 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 it opens up kind of that conversation to, okay, you know, productivity bonuses are, are or productivity standards are kind of a, a negative thing in our profession. But let's talk about what drives productivity standards. How does taking a high salary position with no risk create a push from the business side and what does that do to your, your day, you know, day-to-day basis and stuff like that. So part of what I want to look at is, is what can we do to start to try to change that tide, either on a local level through the, the actually entry-level education, but trying to improve that. Yeah. Another tenet of, of my, um, you know, kind of what I want to look at is, is we, as a profession, have started to look at analytics from the outcomes of, of what we do treatment-wise, which I think is, is a great idea. But I also think it's extremely short-sighted. I think there's a lot of analytics that are out there, especially for those who are, are in business, that you can start looking at, you know, what are demographic trends in your area? What are they doing? Where are hidden opportunities? And what are some different analytics that we can do to kind of tie in to give us, you know, a more savvy clinician? When you look at some of the stats, like low back pain, for example, it's, I think, what, 7% of people have low back pain seek treatment. You know, rather than being worried about let's fight over the small pie, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity that's out there that if we can start to just kind of mine that data and understand how to utilize that data, even outside of healthcare um, that we're looking at, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in there as well. Yeah. So the election is uh, coming up in uh, the first part of November at the annual conference in Chicago, but there's also voting that you can do online, and and PPS has uh, brought that uh, more available to a lot of people online if you're a member, uh, if you can't make the conference. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, take the opportunity, you know, and I obviously would would love to have people to vote for me. Um, you know, they can simply reach out to me on, on email as well as ahead of time. I'm happy to answer questions. You know, brett at robertstherapy.com is my email. Brett is a two T's. Um, but yeah, I think there's, you know, again, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity that our profession has. I think there's a tremendous opportunity in front of us. And I think the cards are actually playing in our favor for, for a change. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how we're able to take and kind of leverage those opportunities and, you know, take our profession in, in a direction that it's never been. 
Yeah, that's great. So I think I remember um, I remember you're a music fan, and uh, Pink Floyd used to be your band. Are you still a Pink Floyd fan? <laughs> still a huge Pink Floyd fan, definitely. Um, listen to a lot of alternative music as well. Um, I've got small kids now, or, or five and eight, and so we're starting to kind of dabble in listening to classical music while they're doing homework and you know, kind of stuff like that. Yeah, so, that's great. Uh, definitely listen to a lot of different things. That's great. So, uh, yeah, so just thinking back on... Um, on uh on opportunities available so you've uh, really taken this uh uh definite business approach to physical therapy and and uh, looked at small towns and i think it's it's real impressive so uh you got any a pearl of wisdom for our listeners before we leave here anything that uh, you think they ought to hear uh, uh relating to leadership and business development i think a lot of it is is making sure um when it comes to business development don't be afraid to take risks i mean ultimately Quite frankly, we have a, a huge backup plan, which is if it doesn't work out, there's lots of therapist jobs that are available out there. You can always kind of get back on your feet and try it again. Um, I think the, the biggest thing is to learn, you know, to, to fail fast if you can. And I know it's easier said than done, but, you know, being honest with yourself that, hey, this just isn't working, we need to change something. Um, and then really looking at it, it, you know, having the honest conversation with yourself of, of what do you what do you want to do? What are you interested in doing? And, and for me, for the longest time, I, I had almost a innate fear of admitting to my peers in the profession that, you know what, I'm a physical therapist, but I'm actually someone who likes the business side better than I like treating patients. You know, it took me almost probably, I'd say almost even eight or nine, ten years to be able to comfortably admit that publicly. But what it came down to is until I made that realization that this is really where my true passion is, it's really holding all of us back. And so figure out what you want to do. And if, if treating patients is what it is, you know, figure out ways that you can maybe outsource or, or get assistance with, with the business side of things. And if you truly are somebody who, who enjoys the business side, you know, don't be ashamed to say, I, I actually like this better and I'd rather do this. Yeah. And so what you're, did you feel judged by your peers uh, for having that position? The reason I ask a question is I've run into people lately that, that do have a little different idea of what physical therapy can be for them and going forward and trying some, some different ways. And, uh, and also talking about how that's, uh, people look at them weird and question them and, and, you know, you know judge them basically. So did you feel judged by that, yeah. that opinion? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, there's been times where I think for a, a therapist, because of the, the environment that we mostly live in, if you're not treating patients, you're not working. And and I think that's definitely a, a conversation, you know, in the past that I've had with different people that, you know, even though I'm not treating patients, I'm still working. And so part of that, what we did is we made a very strategic goal probably about three years ago, four years ago now, to completely change the culture of our practice because I knew that if we wanted to get to where we wanted to go, I had to be able to build a team around me that kind of understands that the value of, of being able to, to sit back and think and to be able to figure out what are opportunities and, quite frankly, set a course for direction that may not have a payoff for one, three, five, ten years is actually very valuable. And so we went through that, and we, we started off saying, number one, we want to make sure that we have the best clinicians around us. And the way that you do that, at least you know, in my mind, is going the residency route. So we start off, okay, we're going to do a residency program. And... Right now we have 
two board certified. So we have, besides myself, there's five additional therapists on board. We have two that have their OCS currently, two that are residents currently to get their OCS. And the fifth person um, is actually working on getting her women's health um, specialty. And so we've kind of taken the approach of, okay, from the clinical side, we want the best of the best, and how do we do that? Here's what we do. What that's helped with is is for me to be able to sit back and say, okay, you guys are the expert clinicians, and I'm not. I'm good on the business side. So if you let me sit back and have this time where I'm not treating, we'll think of doing some really innovative and cool things that are going to help us out as a business. And so one of the one of the things that I kind of did a bunch of research on which a lot of my peers say I'm, I'm crazy for trying to implement, is we got rid of our vacation policy. Basically, what we did is we came to our therapist and said, you're professional. Um, you basically can take as much paid time off as you need, but you have to balance that against three factors. You have to balance it against, A, the ability for you to avoid burnout, because that's a very huge relevant topic in our profession. You have to balance it against the needs of the patients that come in on a daily basis for you to help them. And you have to balance it against the, the economic needs of the business because, again, no margin, no mission. We can't do cool things if we can't, you know, make money to keep pushing us forward. And so we tested it for a year without really, you know, you kind of get your, your control group, see how things go. And then we came out after the, that first year and said, this is what we did last year. This is kind of what the expectations are, and we're going to try it. And so right now we're, we're within kind of that first known year. I mean, this is, you know, in January when we started it. And it's actually, it's, it's worked pretty well. Yeah, and you're you're treating uh, physical therapists as professionals and not employees, so they're making those decisions uh, as a professional. You know, it's it's very, very impressive, and and I think that's great. And I think the message too you're saying is that we need physical therapists in leadership roles. We need physical therapists in roles other than treating patients to grow our our value and 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 grow our, our opportunities in the healthcare system and that takes uh, entrepreneurs it takes people that have the time to think and do things outside of patient care so uh, we shouldn't judge others for deciding to do that that their motives aren't just money driven they're more how can we become more of a factor in healthcare and and, and people's lives and it, and that takes development growth and time yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Brad, it's been just really great talking with you today. Uh, uh, thanks for your insight, and uh, I, I appreciate your uh, your approach that's that's not the typical approach, but one that's uh, been very effective, and it seems like you're doing great things out there in the in rural America. So um, good, good, good for you and good for the patients out there. I uh, wish you best of luck Thank with uh, private practice section elections coming up, and um, I look forward to seeing you at uh, at the next meeting. Thank you, Steve. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, and be sure to check out our entire library of podcasts and videos at vgmadvantage.com. This has been a podcast from Profiles in Leadership.